Welcome to Global Questions by YDS, the podcast breaking down global politics for young people who want to know more. I'm your host, Jan Marcocci. For today's bonus episode, I'm joined by Noah Sobi. He is the Senior Project Officer at the UNESCO Initiative Futures of Education. Trying to do more than simply react to anticipated futures. It's really trying to identify actions we can take today that will let us create the futures we want. Today, we are discussing the work UNESCO Futures of Education is completing to predict and adapt to the foreseeable challenges posed to education and what you can do to get involved in contributing to their report. Thank you so much for being here and making the time for this session. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Jan. It's great to be here. Yeah, thank you. So where are you based actually at the moment? So I'm based in Paris. I work at UNESCO headquarters, although with France under some pretty severe quarantine restrictions, I'm actually teleworking from Chicago at the moment in the United States. And I'm actually at UNESCO on a two-year leave of absence from an academic position. I'm a professor of comparative education uh, here at a university here in Chicago, Loyola University, Chicago. Oh, great. And what do you teach or do you lecture or you're mostly just in research? No, I, I want I do some research for sure, but I teach courses in international higher education and globalization and education, and I also do a lot of work uh, in the history of education. So one interesting thing about this uh, UNESCO move for me was to move directly from the past into the future. Right, interesting. I feel like you've touched on it a bit, but tell me a bit about your professional career. Like, what's led you into this education sphere, and what's kind of brought you into this position now, as senior project officer at the Futures of Education? Yeah, no, thanks. I appreciate the question, Jen. You know, when you look back at sort of a career and what led to the next thing, it sort of makes sense, right? You can construct a story about it, but when you're experiencing it, quite often it's like, you know, random branches with a lot of serendipity involved. Just a, a very quick version is that I did, I was born and raised here in the United States, and I had some very formative personal experiences teaching English in East Central Europe in the early 1990s, right after the Berlin Wall had fallen. Just a fascinating time to be there. And also fascinating for me to think about the education systems I was a part of there and and the ways in which they were similar and different from the school systems I knew in the United States. So I taught for a while in New York City, went to graduate school, ended up getting a PhD in the field of comparative education, which does you know, international comparisons, as you might expect. And then for the past 15 years, have been a professor of comparative education, always doing a lot of work in the history of education, because I find that you know, looking at the historical development of school systems explains a lot about the shape they take and the work kinds of work, they kinds of things they do. I've also been involved in a lot of research projects, I have been past president of Comparative and International Education Society, which is a big network of, uh, of, of researchers and policymakers. And this opportunity to move to UNESCO and help to lead this project came up. And I was very fortunate to get the opportunity. Yeah, fantastic. I'm sure it's probably a really big question, but what is the futures of education and how that come about? Yeah, sure. So this is kind of visioning exercise that UNESCO has done basically at quarter century intervals. Beginning in the early 1970s, there was an international commission chaired by a former French minister, Edgar Faure, and they released a report called Learning to Be, 1972. It 
was a report that really put the notion of lifelong learning on the global education agenda. That was, of course, a really interesting time. Civil rights, women's rights, also a very bipolar world. Lots of people trying to figure out how to ensure the peaceful further development. Then in, in the mid-1990s, UNESCO engaged in this similar kind of visioning exercise, trying to take stock of what the, what the challenges and opportunities of the moment were, and what the, the challenges and opportunities on the horizon were seen to be. And some of the, your listeners, particularly people in education, might be more familiar with a 1996 report put together by the Delore Commission called Learning the Treasure Within. Anyway, I mention these because they're an important part of the framing of the UNESCO's current project, which is at regular intervals to basically take a step back and do a kind of high-level analysis of, you know, what the purposes of education should be given the challenges of the time and what we see in the future. In this edition, we also have an international commission. This time it's chaired by the president of Ethiopia, Madame Salawar Zuda. I think that's an important change from the past versions to have a leader, a female leader from the Global South leading this initiative. There are 17 other members of the commission from all over the world and from a range of different backgrounds. Some people out of education, others out of business, people from policy and government, and also civil society and uh, activism. And that commission's charged with producing a report uh, that will come out in November of 2021, so about a year from now. And I think, though, that there's there's also some important differences from the previous UNESCO efforts. The most, I mentioned one in terms of leadership, but another important one is that this time around, there's a really significant effort being made to ensure that this is a very globally consultative process, that it engages people from all over the planet in a discussion on what the futures of education might be. Yeah, so you touched on like the report that will be produced. And am I right in saying that it's looking at ways to reimagine education by the year 2050 and beyond? It's early stages at the moment, but what do you kind of expect to come out of this report? Yeah, no, it's a great question. The commission's been working for a year and we've released a number of knowledge products and reports and also not just from the commission. One of the things UNESCO is trying to do is really turn this into a global debate and discussion. So we have a whole bunch of things that have been coming out. Maybe maybe now's the time to sort of draw people's attention to an important feature in the title of the project, which is the use of futures in the plural. And when you look out there, that's not something you always see. People talk about the future of education as if there's going to be one future. And I think quite often the problem with that is that that's a future that's envisioned from one particular point on the planet and quite often imposed on others. So what we're really trying to do here is, is embrace, well, it's the, the pragmatic reality that there will be multiple futures of education, but also the idea that that's desirable, that the futures that we make through education uh, need to be democratically and lo locally chosen. The other thing I would say, so, I mean, that theme is, is something that's being developed in the work. One of the consistent ideas that's coming up as we talk with people is the importance of, of education in relation to the common good, education as a global common good, and the necessity of strengthening that common aspect of, of education. There's also, of course, a lot of concern about the ways that education can be used to strengthen sustainability and address climate change. That's, that's an important thing on a lot of people's minds, as is 
the issue of poverty and inequality and the way in which education can be a safeguard, can help us address some of those problems. Uh, and then the final thing is when, particularly when you think about, you know, a horizon of 2015 and beyond, you know, we're all anticipating pretty significant changes to the world of work. You know, you just think about automation, AI, the sort of transformation and the way our economies are set up. And, you know, given that historically, a key piece of education is preparing people for living flourishing lives, but quite frequently, you know, preparing them for work that leads to flourishing lives. You know, a lot of questions come up about what what education will need to be in relation to a future where the world of work is potentially going to change quite a bit. We'll be right back. Are you a tertiary student or recently graduated in Australia and interested in contributing to UNESCO's research and report on the futures of education? Join our event with UNESCO, the United Nations Educational, Scientific and Cultural Organization. You will have the opportunity to ask questions and hear more about the UNESCO's Futures of Education program during this event, followed by consultations in small focus groups to discuss your own thoughts and experiences. These will be facilitated by the Young Diplomat Society in partnership with UNESCO staff. Bring all your questions and thoughts on education to the table. This event will be conducted via Zoom and utilize breakout rooms. Registration is free but essential to secure a spot. Link in the description to register and the FB event page as well. See you there. That report, you're mentioning futures, which is, I think, such an interesting understanding. Is it like you're providing a few models in a sense that could be followed? Yeah, I mean, I think that there definitely are going to need to be different paths for different parts of the world. I mean, the challenge, and, and COVID has illustrated this perfectly, right? I mean, we, we, we live on a shared, we are human in some common ways. We share a common humanity, yet we've also seen that, you know, social systems have meant that the virus's effects are, are not, quote unquote, evenly distributed, but they fall harder on people who are marginalized in their societies. You know, at the same time, it's something that everyone is affected by. So the challenge, I think, is to think about universals like human rights, think about a, a notion of humanistic framing of education and development that at the same time as it attends to the full developing development of human beings and, and the creation of opportunities, equal opportunities, is also increasingly attuned to the problems of the planet. So you're touching on the effects of the pandemic. The UN has kind of highlighted the effects of how COVID has impacted on education more broadly and how an entire generation and the future of an entire generation is at risk because of the effects of COVID. Due to a number of factors, including that schools were shut and people had to adapt to the home life situation. What does this mean for education and the work that UNESCO is producing through this initiative and project? I think it means a lot for everyone's work in education, you know, whether you're kind of working in the immediate term, you know, trying to get connectivity, trying to get, you know, teachers trained or, you know, hybrid pedagogic models, or whether you're thinking longer term like we're doing in this project. You know, the COVID disruptions have been absolutely enormous. I think your listeners will know probably many have experienced either in themselves or through their families, you know, that uh, in most parts of the world, we had an abrupt closure of schools, a continuation for sure, in some parts of the world um, through distance means, both high tech, low tech, and no tech. But essentially overnight, you could say an entire generation 
um, had its education put on hold. Of course, a lot of things were put on hold. But when we at the Futures of Education Initiative at, at, at UNESCO looked at COVID, one of the things we were most interested in was the decisions that are going to be made in the short term that will have very significant long-term consequence. So I think, you know, COVID has shown us that inequalities in our society are, are, are probably more severe than we were willing to recognize previously. And so I think it, it forces us to action in, in that regard. COVID it has also shown, shown us, I think, you know, something about the importance of schools as physical places where people come together to learn with other learners and with teachers. There certainly is a lot that you can accomplished through technology, and that should be, you know, cheered and enhanced. But I think we've also been dealt a very useful reminder of the importance of, of, of physically coming together uh, in educational settings, but but in so many other other social settings as well. So it has it has definitely reshaped how, how we and I think pretty much everyone around the globe is thinking about education. The other thing that the COVID disruptions have shown is just how possible change is, you know? I mean, just how possible it is to radically reorganize the ways we live. So if we think about COVID crisis, we think about the, the climate crisis, you know, let's not, let's not let any of these challenges seem impossible, right? I mean, if there's one thing COVID, there's one useful thing we can take from COVID, it's that we do as human beings as human societies have the ability to adapt on a pretty massive scale. So it's a massive change is, is in fact quite possible. Yeah, 100%. And when you're talking about like those inequalities that are being shown more strongly through the lens of COVID and its effects, what are kind of the main inequalities that you're referencing there? Well, what kind of education continues and for whom? So we know that in, in certain areas, even with strong distance education, it's often using you know, digital platforms, it's possible to continue learning of academic subjects. You know, I think one of the things that that UN report that you brought up earlier shows a lot of other kinds of learning, you know, the social emotional learning, the soft skills. We know there's, there already is like a huge mental health cost of this disruption. Those kinds of things are not as easy to continue in online settings. So even in well-resourced places, there are inequalities and some pretty significant uh, differences in what people can accomplish. But then you move to other parts of the world in sub-Saharan Africa, for example, about 80% of kids at home don't have access to internet. You're looking at, at low-tech solutions like radio or television, but even the, the technology uh, to access that is really unevenly distributed. I mean, really, the there will be a cost, I think, to everyone in the current generation, but it will be pretty unevenly born. Both people in more marginalized areas of the world, and not just across nations, but within nations too. I know you see that in Australia. We see it here in the United States, where the advantages that in normal times allow, you know, the family advantages, the wealth advantages that allow um, some students to progress faster are, are now just allowing some students to progress at all and others not. Are you across UNICEF's like six-point plan at all that was outlined in the report? 
I mean, one of the things that's been heartening across this whole episode the last year is, is just how much international organizations like UNESCO, UNICEF, the World Bank, the OECD are really cooperating. You know, that's you know sadly not always the case, but it definitely has been the case in the, in the in the recent pandemic. You know, and I think there's now some really good policy guidance to educators, both on opening schools, how to continue learning. Then there's let's not forget there's there's going to be another important step returning people back to school once, you know, we have a successful global distribution of, of the virus of, you know, how do we attend to the learning losses, um, which are going to be really, really significant. With the futures of education, I know it's not solely born and looking at COVID. How do you then kind of model what the outcome is going to end up being in the future and then adapt the report to that? Yeah, well, I appreciate the question, Jen. Let me come at it from a couple of different directions. First, I would say that we think about the future, we can think about education in the future, right? So what schools will be like in 2050. And we can, at the same time, think about education for the future. You know, the ways that we educate today will shape the world of 2050. And this project's really trying to do both. It's trying to do more than simply react to anticipated or predicted futures or even probable futures. It's really trying to identify actions we can take today that will let us create the futures we want. So a big part of the consultation process uh, is actually engaging with people on, you know, what are the futures they want and then how do they see education as a tool that can be used individually and collectively to accomplish that. So that's the first part. That said, of course, I think we do need to think a lot about what has been predicted, different scenarios, kind of run through them, put that together with what is desired, and then think about steps that we can take to achieve them. You know, one way to think about it is there's a great quote that's used quite a bit in in, in future studies. It comes from Ray Bradbury, who writes that the future is already here. It's just unevenly distributed. I think there's a lot of, of wisdom in that. You know, we don't necessarily know what kinds of futures will emerge and take center stage, but we do know that the seeds of those possible futures are in our present. And so I think the task becomes to identify what is it that pushes us in the directions we want to head? What is it that hinders us from moving in the directions we want to head? And then finding out how we can tip the balance, how we can find the seeds of possibility in our present uh, and nurture them so they grow, so they're not prevented from becoming the futures, the alternative futures that we want. That's a very good perspective to bring. When I read about education and the futures of it, there's always this emphasis on early learning sectors over other levels of education. Why is it kind of like that? Is that just like a more vulnerable sector than the other types of education or am I just reading (laughs) wrong? Well, I think, no, I think, I think you're correct. I think there are several things that feed into it. One is that um, we really do know that early childhood education is essential, that children who don't meet and hit developmental milestones are seriously set back for the rest of their lives. That said, we also have increasing neuroscience research, which speaks to the plasticity of the human brain across the lifespan, something that we haven't always known. And the point of that is it is actually possible for us to learn <laughs> and learn powerfully, deeply, basically at all ages. 
However, early childhood education is widely agreed to be quite important. It's definitely a hugely important for individual life opportunities and outcomes and so forth. Uh, then the other piece of it is, I think, you know, um, a lot of people associate children with the future. And on the one hand, uh, how could you how could you argue with that? The, the next generations are going to be the ones around after we're here. But I think that, you know, if you think about the Fridays for the Future movement, you know, Greta Thunberg and others, you know, are really bringing on to everyone's agenda that, you know, we can't wait for the future to happen. We can't just leave it to another generation to solve once they become the adults in our shoes. Uh, no, we all need to take action now. And in fact, even though it seems like a good idea to leave the future to the next generation, it might actually be a pretty grievous act of intergenerational injustice if we if we just kind of live in the present and leave the future for tomorrow. Yeah. So in saying that, is that why you guys kind of conduct those focus groups and how important others? Yeah. No, thanks for bringing that up. So, I mean, a key piece of of making this initiative one of global consultation and global engagement to have organizations run focus groups with their networks, with in, people in their communities to ask some of these questions we've been going over, Jen. Uh, what, what, what are we concerned about? How do we think education, what's the role we think education, education can play? And then to make sure that all those perspectives from around the planet come into the conversation. So these focus groups, I think, are also useful. You know, we also have some online platforms yeah but what, what are the platforms if people want to find and get involved so we have a, we have a survey that so far has 65,000 responses the more we can get the sort of broader uh, picture it's pretty high scale there's also a place where people can submit their ideas in writing welcome uh, artwork we have a platform for people to submit their visions of education in the year 2050 and some really some really exciting stuff has come in but uh, what i particularly like about the focus groups is that it gets people talking with each with others mm. those those online platforms don't necessarily need to be in Individual. Over the course of an hour in a conversation with other people, you realize that through dialogue, through deliberation, we achieve, we, we arrive at collective accomplishments that are greater than any one of us could have done alone. An idea from someone sparks an idea from another person. Um, I mean, it's, 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 I think it's a really wonderful way um, to kind of engage with other people uh, to move ideas forward. So the focus groups are a really important part. Uh, of the project. They're important, one, because they capture uh, voices, perspectives, ideas from all parts of the world. Um, so uh, in that sense, it's in, we're very uh, interested in them in the, there being like an uh, even geographic distribution and people of all ages and people from different um, you know sectors participating in these groups and so we're constantly working on that but the other the other way that the focus groups uh, are useful um, is for the way in which they surface kind of like outlying ideas ideas that are unusual unconventional ideas a good focus group goes well beyond groupthink lets people surface ideas maybe they're crazy maybe they're out there but maybe you know, kind of in that setting there's something that we haven't thought of people haven't thought of yet that can be of considerable value that sounds great and what are kind of the bigger themes and like barriers that you guys are talking about in these focus groups or like identifying through these surveys well i mean the key challenges that people see are, are really climate change i think 
more than politicians and governments around the world. Um, I think people are, are feeling the effects of this in, in places they weren't expected. Of course, there's sea levels rising. There's also increasing parts of the world that are, are less and less habitable, where drought becomes more com commonplace, where you have extreme weather events. We talk about climate migration, you know, the expectation that um, there might be even within several decades, some very significant relocation of, of peoples, of communities, you know, uh, will the Mekong Delta still be habitable uh, in 2050 is an open question. Um, so it's quite clear in focus groups and all the responses that we're getting that really changing course in, in relation to climate and environmental destruction more broadly uh, is something that's that's important to a lot of people. Challenges around around inequality and poverty and the world of work are, are also ones that come up frequently. In reimagining education, how does that intersect with also reimagining how jobs are going to be presented in the future to people coming through through the next generations and 2050 and beyond? Or are you guys just solely looking at that education? So there's one 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 line of argument would say that you know the way you educate for the jobs of tomorrow, which we don't know, right? The way you educate for jobs that we don't know about, to think about you know competencies and skills, like what are the things that people need to be able to do, and you then gear the education system on that. That's probably a lot of you know critical thinking, problem solving, social emotional skills, soft skills, and then people as they have across the past century two will adjust to jobs, be able to thrive and excel in jobs that didn't exist when they were in school. I would certainly agree um, that that's a foundational piece. But to be a little bit, you know, to push the envelope a little bit, I also think we want to think about what education might look like in a society where there was considerably less work available than there is now. You know, I certainly hope that our commitments to human rights, our commitments to human dignity mean that we find as societies around the globe, that we find ways for people to live uh, flourishing lives, even if there aren't, you know, enough jobs to go around. There's certainly enough money to go around. I mean, we see that in some of the gross inequalities in the distribution of wealth right now. So then the question, the interesting question becomes, so if education is not about preparing people for work, what should it be preparing them for? You know, what if we were to think about, you know, the civic functions, the citizenship, the mobilization skills that people might learn in schools, how those could be useful. In a world without uh, the kinds of jobs that we have now, it's quite likely that people would still be engaged in lots of meaningful activities. Volunteerism might become more and more important. And so how would we how would we design a school system to equip people to do meaningful and rewarding volunteering? And, you know, to my earlier comment, Jen, about ways in which sometimes the, the seeds of the future are present with us today, you have to wonder about just how much would be the right way to put it. Artistic and really social contributions are made through social media. Now, social media can be used in some awful ways from the United States. Recently, we've seen that. But there are also ways, you know, Wikipedia is a great example of a digital platform where pe people freely give people volunteer but you obviously you couldn't have made wikipedia without modern education systems so i think the challenge is to become is is what kinds of education systems can we design can we reimagine that will be kind of 
versatile and flexible for many possible desired features. Yeah, I love all that reimagining aspect of it because I think a lot of people kind of just, you know, they go along with the norms and don't really think about what's coming and how we are going to need to adapt to so many global challenges. Finally then, how can young people contribute and get involved in this initiative? Well, I mentioned that, you know, people are organizing focus groups are one great way to contribute and get involved. I mentioned we have some online platforms. That's another great way to get involved. What would be ideal, Jen, would be for people to offer their ideas and input into the development of the report and then to engage and continue to engage the report after it comes out. So I'm, I'm hoping that people will disagree with it, that they'll find ways to improve it. The goal here is not to come up with the world's perfect blueprint for the future of education. I think that's, that's an impossible task, not even one we should aspire to. But a set of ideas that serve as signposts that can take us in directions that we collectively decide we want to head, that I think will be useful. And then after November 2021, let's continue. Let's continue these discussions about how education can make better futures for humanity and the planet. What a fantastic opportunity as well to be able to actually contribute to a global report and be involved in that process in reimagining what could be. So yeah, if you want to contribute to this great cause and initiative, Futures of Education, search it on Google or whatever you use, and all the links will be in the description as well. But in saying that, it's been a pleasure to interview you, Noah, and thank you so much for your time today. It's It's been great. No, it's been a pleasure. Thanks very much. If we've sparked your interest or you want to hear more about a certain topic, contact us via our socials, website, or the link in the description. This is Global Questions. And thanks for listening.